If you will, take out your Bible. Turn on my phone here. If you will, take out your Bible and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not long. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy, and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Church, this is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that You would bless the reading of Your Word. We ask that You would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what has been said and that we receive it not as the words of a man but as what it really is, the Word of God. Lord Jesus, please be merciful upon our church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can see, we've stepped once again out of our normal trajectory and are engaging in an unexpected detour 
in regard to our regular expositions. And for those of you who are guests, we've been going through the book of Matthew for about four years. And then we took a break and we're doing a study on the doctrine of uh, the atonement. And we still have another week of that, but now we're taking yet another rabbit trail. The thing which we must be involved ourselves in on this Lord's Day is a very hard thing. And the events of this day will no doubt be marked in all of our minds for the rest of our lives, I'm sure. But we take great courage in believing that what we're about to do is also a biblical thing. It's therefore profitable, it is honoring to God, and it exalts Christ, the head of the church. And also, it is a hopeful thing that we have to do because we believe that there is power and expectancy when we obey the commands of God. If we don't obey, we have no reason to expect any blessing, any reward, any positive benefit. But when we do obey, we may expect those things. And so as we move into the exposition, I hope you'll devote as much of your attention as you can to what I'm going to say. It will not be short. This won't be a short sermon. Um, At some points it will be tedious. But remember that it is your God-given duty to be careful how you hear the Word of God, to pay attention how you receive it. And so that being said, I want to open up this passage, this chapter, a notorious passage on church discipline under... Three headings. First, we're seeing in this section a particular kind of sin. Second, we're seeing a particular kind of response. And thirdly, we're seeing a particular kind of sinner. Now, again, I hope that you won't mind if I'm paying extra close attention to my notes. Today, this message was not planned. It was actually typed out through the night between Friday and Saturday. And and that being said, I haven't had as much time to allow this to to simmer into my brain. So if it looks like I'm reading, it's because I'm reading. First, point number one, a particular kind of sin. A particular kind of sin. We see this in verse 1. While all sin is equally wicked before God, all sin is equally deserving of eternal hell. The Scriptures are clear that not all sins have equal ramifications with regard to their fruit in this life and how they um, relate to our fellow man. We can see this truth illustrated in the certain ways that the law of Moses would apply to certain sins with regard to other sins. Certain sins uh, called for the death penalty, while not all sins called for the death penalty. And we also see this here as uh, Christ, through the apostle, commands the new covenant church in how to deal with sins. So what makes the sin of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 special? First, it is a public sin. We read, it is actually reported. Now, the Corinthian church, we know, had written to Paul, and they had volunteered a lot of information to him in in trying to get his apostolic counsel with regard to their church and their present circumstances. But this, however, was an issue that had not been mentioned by the church. But rather, it seems that it's reported to Paul by a different source altogether. In other words, word had gotten out. They didn't volunteer it. It was just known. It was being reported. And so we know that this was a public sin. 
It was a public sin. In contrast to, we hear the word public, we think it's on television or on the radio or in the newspaper. The Bible doesn't use those distinctions. It was a public sin in contrast to a private sin of the heart or the mind that nobody knows unless you confess it. It was a a private sin uh, in contrast to a sin between two people that remains between two people until they reach outside of that small circle. In other words, this sin has come to be known and to be broadcast to people who did not have a personal connection to the sin or the sinner. It was a public sin. The second thing that makes this sin special is that it is a disgraceful sin. Notice he says that this sin was of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. In other words, even lost people would not put up with this. Even the marred and scarred image of God remaining on the hearts of the unregenerate and godless pagans of their age would not allow them in good conscience to overlook a sin like this. Now what was the sin? Well, we can read, a man has his father's wife. In other words, he had married or was at least sleeping with his stepmother. Now let's contrast that sin with with other scenarios in Scripture. Here again we see different kinds of sins are treated differently. We get very accustomed to saying, well everything, it's it's all sin to God. All sins are the same to God. All sins separate us from God. Well, We have to remember that is true, but at the same time there are different punishments. There are different repercussions. So, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, we read this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now here we see an instance of sin between brothers. You've got two Christians. One has sinned against the other. Jesus prescribes a four-step process of concentric circles. Start with two, and then bring a few more, and then get to the church. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him like a lost person. Do not assume that this person is converted. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Paul writes, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So here in that section, the the issue was a disorderly or undisciplined lifestyle. This person's lifestyle did not consistently follow the pattern given by the apostle. Now that's different than looking at a person's life and seeing no pattern of godliness. Here there was disorder. There was a lack of discipline. And so Paul says, don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. Treat him like a Christian. 
Assume he's converted, but warn him. That's that scenario in Romans chapter 16, verses, verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Those who cause divisions in the church and teach false doctrine in the church are to be avoided. Have nothing to do with them. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So those who cause divisions in the church, one of the things God hates, a man who causes division. He says, warn him once about this division. Warn him twice about causing division. And after that, your job is done. Have nothing to do with him. Avoid him completely. I believe that would also fall into the category of casting your pearls before swine. It's not your job to constantly, constantly, constantly beg and plead with someone after you've warned them once or twice. Have nothing more to do with them. So you see, the sin being addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 is a public and disgraceful sin that is indicative of this person's lifestyle. It is not private. It is not minor. It is not merely an irresponsible habit that this person has. Therefore, it requires special treatment. Now, I want you to consider just for a second the reproaches of such a public and disgraceful sin. As it pertains to our relations with our fellow men, which seems to be the primary aggravation and distinction of this particular sin, it's not like God is, is pointing out that this sin is more offensive than another, but with regard to how it is influencing and, and viewed by the people. This, the main issue is the reproach that is being brought upon this person, upon the church in Corinth, upon the gospel, and upon Christ. Public and disgraceful sins bring reproach upon yourself from others, especially those who are not even personally involved with the sin or the sinner. They don't know all of the ins and outs. They don't know all of the details. All they see is that person claims to be a Christian, but they don't live like a Christian. That makes you look bad. Public and disgraceful sin brings reproach upon a local church. It makes a local assembly appear to be more or nothing more than just a synagogue of Satan. Well, they get together and they talk about God and they read the Scriptures, but look at how they're living. They don't care. And I will say this with regard to the specific subject today. There are others in this room right now whose own personal and yet public sins have been used as an excuse and a defense of the sin and the sinner we're dealing with today. That ought not to be. But from, from both sides. Number one, you don't receive rebuke from your sin and then look at someone else and say, well, look what they're doing. Secondly, an open, public sinner should not be able to point his finger into the church and say, what about this person? Well, look what he's doing. Have you not addressed it with him? How come I'm being treated differently than everybody else? It brings reproach upon a church as a body. Public and disgraceful sins bring reproach upon the gospel by proclaiming to everyone who sees and hears about them that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to get me out of hell, but it's not enough to set me free from my bondage to sin in this life. 
In other words, the gospel has no power. And related to that, public and disgraceful sins bring reproach upon Christ Himself in all of those areas. A member of the body of Christ, a, a visible representation of the universal body of Christ, the gospel of Christ, but also it proclaims to a lost and dying world, we've got something that is no better than what you got because it doesn't change the way we live. It has not actually affected us. Again, Christ is good enough to get me out of hell, but He's not enough for me to cling to in order to put to death my sinful flesh. So what we're dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and today in Covenant Bible Church is a particular kind of sin, a public and disgraceful sin. Point number two, a particular kind of response. We see this in verses 2 through 8. First notice the Corinthians' wrong response. The beginning of verse 2, Paul says, And you are arrogant. At the beginning of verse 6, Your boasting is not good. The Corinthian church had many great boasts about their elaborate and exotic use of, of sign gifts, their misuse, their favorite teachers. They had super apostles. They, they would brag about which, which apostle, which teacher baptized them and which one didn't. They had all of these wonderful liberties that they could use and abuse. It doesn't bother me if I eat food sacrificed to idols because my conscience is clear. I know that that idol means nothing. And they would brag and boast about all of these things. And yet... As a church, they were allowing public and disgraceful sin to go unaddressed. It does not matter what all external extravagancies a church might boast. If sin is tolerated and left unaddressed, that church is without the power of God. If people can just live however they want, there is no power in that church. It is just a, pe a group of people getting together, talking about what they wish were true, but is not true. And so notice the proper response. Beginning at the end of verse 2. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice in these verses what Paul commands or expects of the church in Corinth. First, they are to mourn. They are to grieve. They are to be sad about what's happening. He gives it in the form of a rhetorical question. So he's saying by way of a statement in the form of a rhetorical question, you should be saddened. 
You should grieve. Your hearts should be breaking. Isn't it ripping you apart inside that one of your own number is caught in scandalous sin? If your heart is not breaking, ask God to break your heart. They are to mourn. Secondly, he says, let him be removed from among you. So he commands that church to get together as a body and remove this man from their fellowship. Now what does that look like? We'll look at the, the two different things. He, he first references apostolic judgment. Paul did not need to hear any more details about the situation. He did not have to come and investigate. He didn't have to hear both sides. He, the report had already been given. He knew the severity and the seriousness of this particular sin. He knew of the public and disgraceful nature of this sin. And so based on his apostolic authority, the authority of Christ himself, he says, this man's already judged. He's already guilty. I don't, we don't have to go any further. It's done. Now we don't have an apostle with us here. And we don't have an apostle writing a letter. I didn't get a letter out of the mailbox this morning that said to Covenant Bible Church is what you need to do. We don't have that. But we look to canonized Holy Scripture and we can use that standard to pronounce judgment. And when the world says, judge not, we say, sorry, my master has told me to. My Lord has commanded me to judge. God's already judged. So there must be a declaration of guilt based on scriptural grounds. That'll come later. Secondly, there is corporate authority in this removal. Just like in Matthew chapter 18, we learn here that when a church gathers, a true biblical church, when that church gets together under the banner of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His gospel, His person, His work, that church has corporate authority because Christ is in the midst. In other words, church, He's here right now. Jesus is here. And so Paul says, when you get together as a church, Jesus is there. The next time you can get everybody together, deliver this man to Satan. Let him have his passions. Let him go and savor the taste of his sin. Let him soak in the worthless fruit of his wicked ways. And hopefully, we read here, the goal is not that he would ultimately be anathema, accursed, Damned, but hopefully that will work to eradicate the flesh, to mortify his sin, cause him to seek repentance. Just like Job, God allowed, used Satan to destroy everything in Job's life so that at the end Job didn't say, well, fine, I don't want anything to do with that God. No, Job came back and said, I had heard about God, but now I've seen him with my own eyes. Now I know God. That's the point. Amen. That's what we want to happen. So mourn over this fact. And when you get together, remove this man. The third thing he expects of this church is a cleansing. Which this sort of comes together in this idea of cleansing. In verse, verses 6b through verse 8, Paul uses the observance of the Passover and the following uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread 
to paint a vivid picture of what needs to happen in the church. The church needs to cleanse itself of sin. You'll remember there was the Passover where the lamb was killed. They had the Passover feast. But then after that, for seven days, they were to have gotten rid of all leaven out of their homes. And they were to have a, 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 a seven days of living without leaven. It was to be removed from their midst. And when you read the Bible, you learn... Very often, leaven is a picture of sin, of hypocrisy, of evil. And so what Paul is saying here is, instead of the Paschal Lamb having been sacrificed, now the antitype, which we learned about last week or uh, recently, the antitype has now died. Christ has died, fulfilling that picture. And so in the same way that the Jews, following the death of that Lamb, were to rid their homes of leaven for the observation of the feast... So also, in light of Christ's death, we come not to feast on a lamb, but to feast upon Christ Himself, and to do so having ourselves cleansed of sin and hypocrisy and evil. And so removing this erring brother was a means of cleansing or purifying the church of sin, which could have possibly began to spread and infected the whole body. That particular sin, maybe... Or just the fact that the members of the church come to the realization, this church doesn't care about sin. They're not serious. Well, that preacher can get all red-faced all he wants, but they're not going to do anything. This is what happens when sin is left unaddressed in a church. So we have a particular kind of sin, a particular kind of response, and then thirdly, a particular kind of sinner. A particular kind of sinner in verses 9 through 13. The sin being described and the response being mandated would not necessarily coincide unless the man committing this particular kind of sin was a particular kind of sinner. Why? Well, we know all men are sinners. We're all sinners. I've sinned today. We're all sinners. All have fallen short of the glory of God. If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. All men are sinners. But all sin does not necessitate this particular kind of action. So what kind of sinner is this man? Well, in verses 9 and 10, we learn he is not an outsider. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. He states that... In a prior letter, he had commanded this church not to associate with sexually immoral people, but that he did not have in mind and never had in mind sexually immoral lost people, the people of the world, the unregenerate. Now, why would that be? Typically, the church seems to think the opposite. Don't hang out with anybody in the world. Only hang out with Christians. Well, the problem is... All regenerate, unregenerate men are characterized by a level of sin and sinfulness. And I hope we understand the difference between I'm a sinner and a life characterized by sin. All unregenerate men are characterized by a level of sin, sinfulness that should not be named among the people of God. And very many of them are actively involved in public and disgraceful sins. And so to disassociate with all unregenerate people who are involved in uh, open, public, and disgraceful sins would require that we withdraw completely out of the world, which is never advocated in Scripture. 
So we know that the issue with this man has not arisen because he's just some lost guy. We learn in verses 11 through 13 that he is a professor of the Christian faith. He's a particular kind of sinner because he's one who is a professor of the Christian faith. The primary issue with this particular sin and this particular sinner and the particular kind of response commanded by Paul is that this man actually professes to be a Christian. In verse 11, we see that he bears the name of brother. Verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This man has taken upon himself the title brother in Christ, child of God, adopted into the family of God, a son of God and a co-heir with Christ. He claims to be a Christian personally. In verse 12, we see that he is inside the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Again, a rhetorical question. The statement being, you are to judge those inside the church. This man not only professes to be a Christian, but he is a member of a visible church. He goes to church and does church things with church people and tells church people, I'm one of you. And in verse 13, we see that the language Paul uses that this man was among them. Not only does this man profess to be a Christian, not only is he a member of the visible church, but he's actually among the church in Corinth. It wasn't like he joined and then they never saw him again. He was among the church. He was one of them. He was a friend to them. He was well known to them. They knew who he was and he knew them. Everybody associated this man with this church. So if a lost, unregenerate pagan acts like a lost, unregenerate pagan, that's bad. We don't want that. We want to proclaim the gospel to them. But that, that's not a contradiction of terms. We should not be blown away by the fact that a lost person acts like a lost person. That's not strange. But it brings, and also that, that brings no reproach upon Christ. That shows that they need a Savior. It brings no reproach upon the church. It shows that they need a gospel body of believers. It doesn't bring reproach upon the gospel because they've not heard it. It shows that they need it. But when a person who professes to have been born again has joined himself to a local church, is waving the banner of Christ's bride, while at the very same time waving the banner of public and disgraceful sin, that is a contradiction in terms. It makes the sin worse. Yes, there are worse kinds of sin. That brings the problem under the jurisdiction of the local church because Christ gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. He said they're yours. And that also makes it a top priority for the church. Notice he says, the next time you're together, when you are assembled, when you get together... You have to do this. So in this passage of Scripture, in this chapter, we see a particular kind of sin committed by a particular kind of sinner that requires a particular kind of response from the local church. Is that clear? Okay. So how are we going to apply this today? I know you are wondering, what in the world is going on? First, and these are just some observations that we need to consider. First, more than one specific sin falls into this category. 
Very often we stop paying attention. Our mind gets hung up on this dude who's sleeping with his stepmom. We're grossed out and we get hung up there and we stop and we don't realize Paul actually applies the same teaching to other sins. In verse 11, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater. Reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All of that is in the same category. Sexual immorality. Specific to this section is sexual immorality. That doesn't mean sleeping with your stepmom is the only sexually immoral sin. There are many things that fall into the category of pornea, fornication. Addiction to pornography and the private sins that go along with that. Lust of the mind that, that comes to be acted out in, in physical ways. Inordinate physical relationships with someone who is not your spouse. Is that you? Greed. Someone who wants more and more money. It's just never enough. They'll do anything and everything just to get a little more money. Earning and maintaining the almighty dollar dictates their willingness to obey God's commands. Is that you? An idolater. One whose primary focus of the heart and the mind and their general life direction is aimed not at the one true and living God and glorifying Him and serving Him with every breath and thought and word and deed. It's just focused on something else. It doesn't have to be something awful, just something else. A hobby. A persona you want to display. A particular lifestyle that you want to have. A house, a car, a truck, your family. Anything and everything that might possibly take the position of God in your life, in priority, in your thoughts, in your words, your deeds, your actions, your meditations. Is that you? A reviler is one who slanders others, who attacks others' reputations verbally. Is that you? Are you a, a gossip? You like to spread lies and rumors and hear the latest juicy tales about people's lives that have nothing to do with you and they don't it doesn't matter it's not glorifying to god a drunkard as defined a person who habitually drinks alcohol especially but not limited to to the state of drunkenness you like to drink you like to get tipsy? You live for a buzz? Is the almighty bottle your refuge and strength and your ever-present help in time of need? Is that you? Or a swindler? A thief? Do you steal from your employer? Do you steal from restaurants? Do you steal from waiters and waitresses who have served you? Do you steal from God? Rob God? with your offerings to the church and His kingdom. Is that you? All of these are in the same category 
as those types of sins, the participators in which should be immediately removed from the church. The next time you're together, they're gone. Those who are found guilty of these public and disgraceful sins who profess to be Christians are to be removed from fellowship and friendly association is to be cut off. Second observation or application for today. Named among the legitimate offenses here is a drunkard. A drunkard. Now some of you just breathe a sigh of relief, but there's always next week. A drunkard. Again, as defined, a person who habitually drinks alcohol, especially to the state of drunkenness, but not limited to the state of drunkenness, just habitually drinking. Now, this is also used in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. A drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, a different masculine word is used to describe the same thing. An elder in the church cannot be a drunkard. He may not be a drunkard. Now what do we believe that the Bible teaches about alcohol? This county has warred over this for years. What do we believe the Bible teaches about alcohol consumption? Number one, the Bible nowhere condemns consumption of alcohol outright. Nowhere. Number two, the Bible teaches that alcohol, namely wine, is a gift from God and can, can have positive effects. Number three, the scriptural warnings with regard to alcohol consumption are so numerous and so vivid that they make the consumption of alcohol something that should be weighed very heavily, considered in all of its possible effects and outcomes before even attempting to participate. Like standing on the edge of a cliff or jumping out of an airplane. You might not die, but you had better think about whether you're going to die. Again, drunkenness, when it comes to drunkenness, I'm going to define this. Drunkenness. How do we know? Well, I should give you the fourth truth that we believe about alcohol. Drinking alcohol to the point of drunkenness is a sin in every case without exception. No question. It is a sin. Now let me define drunkenness. If you are drunk, that means that alcohol can be sourced... As for the reason for bad decisions, ungodly or abnormal behavior, physical and or mental inabilities. In other words, as soon as your mind begins to process things slower than normal, which is the first product of alcohol consumption is that you get a little slower in your thinking. You're drunk. People want to say, you're buzzed, you're tipsy. I, no, I, you're drunk. I can't find the word buzzed or tipsy in Scripture. You're either drunk or you're sober. So, 
fifth truth that we believe, being addicted to alcohol, like any physical addiction, is a sin in every case. If something has a hold of you, you are a slave to that thing. We are to be slaves of God, not slaves to anything else. And I would, I've been argued on this. Well, what about drinking coffee? Yeah, caffeine. If you're addicted, cut it. Cut it off. It's got a hold of you. Now, it doesn't have the same effects. I don't know that anybody's ever crashed and killed a family because they were you know, drinking a cup of coffee, just from the coffee, not dumping it in their lap or something. But it's the same thing. Physical addictions, they, they take a hold of our minds and our bodies, and that should not be the case. A Christian should be sober-minded in everything, able at a moment's notice to give a defense for the hope that is in us with, with clarity and, and a, a quick responsiveness of mind and of word. So being addicted to alcohol, like any physical condition, condition or addiction, is a sin in every case. And sixthly, the consumption of alcohol not leading to drunkenness and not within the bounds of alcoholism. Again, you can be an alcoholic and not be drunk. Falls into the category of Christian liberty. Meaning... Christian liberty does not mean, well, I can do this if I want to and nobody can tell me any different. That's not Christian liberty. Christian liberty means it may be entertained, but it must just as easily and quickly be given up for the sake of your own or another's faith, their well-being, the gospel, the church. A liberty is not something that you cling to. As soon as you begin to cling to it and say, I'm not letting go. It's my Christian liberty. As soon as you start to do that, it's not a liberty. It's got you. You think you've got it, but it's got you. A liberty is something that you can say, well, I'll do it, but I mean, if that's a problem, hey, I'll quit. No problem. Whatever you, if I can help someone else, if it will serve someone else, if it will do better for someone else's faith, I'll give it up in a second if that's what it costs. Again, following the pattern of Christ who gave up his, his life. For the sake of His elect, His people. He died for them. We should be able to give up little piddly things on this earth. Another thing under this category of a drunkard, I want to read to you what secular sources call alcoholism. Um, This is from a Christian website, and you can Google, or not Christian, a non-Christian website, and you can Google this. The the lists are everywhere. They're all the same. But on quitalcohol.com, they're not teetotalers. They're not saying if you drink a drop, you're in sin. But they want to help people with alcoholism. What are the symptoms of alcoholism? Drinking alone and or attempting to hide it from others. Not being able to place a limit on consumption. Missing family-based or even business-related events. Feeling irritable when unable to have a drink. Relationship trouble stemming from alcohol use. You you, you realize what happens there, the problem? Your relationship, especially with your spouse, should be on earth the most important relationship you have. Apart from your relationship with Christ is your spouse. And so if there's something in your life that's disrupting that, it should immediately be done away with. Immediately. A hobby, a pastime, I don't care what it is. Your spouse is more important than whatever you're holding on to. And the last one, run-ins with the law, such as driving under the influence or public intoxication. Why? Because that shows that even in public, you're not thinking straight. You don't care about the repercussions of your actions. And so, that's again a secular source. Someone fitting these descriptors is considered an alcoholic or what the Bible would call a drunkard. 
And so someone fitting these descriptions while claiming to be a Christian is fit subject for the discipline prescribed in 1 Corinthians 5. Is that clear? That's straightforward. I hope you can see I'm trying to build a case. This is, this is not thrown together. The third observation. We need to understand the contrast or the competition between righteous and godly wisdom versus liberty unto sin. You see the difference? There are liberties, but if that liberty leads to sin, it is in contrast with righteous and godly wisdom, godly thinking. Let me prove this out. Luke 22 and verse 40. We read, And when He, that is Jesus, came to the place, He said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus commands His disciples in this case where temptation could possibly arrive, a temptation to sin. Their job was not to search it out. Their job was not to entertain it. Their job was not to give in to it. Their job was not to brace themselves and be ready for it. Their job was to pray, seeking God's help, that it wouldn't come. That temptation wouldn't even be there. Before the temptation arose, their duty was to pray. In other words, temptation to sin. Not sin. Hear what I'm saying. Not sin. The temptation to sin is not something to be entertained, coddled, petted, or even treated with indifference. It is to be avoided. We are to be on the offense preparing to wage war against temptation. Not just sin. We don't go into temptation and then just hope that we make it. We avoid the temptation altogether. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Proverbs 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not get burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? What's the answer? No. It's obvious. Now is, he, is this a proverb that teaches us where to carry burning logs? When and how to walk on hot coals. No. He's giving us a piece of wisdom. He's saying if a thing is known to be dangerous, is it wise to allow it anywhere near you? No. If a thing is known to burn you, is it wise to play with it? No. It's not. That's called godly wisdom. Now, Here's my point. If any activity falls into the category of Christian liberty, meaning it's not commanded, but it's not forbidden, and you know that if you partake of that liberty, it will cause problems, godly wisdom says, don't participate. Godly wisdom says, pray that you're not even tempted with it. Pray so that you don't even get close to it. Don't even go near it. That's godly wisdom. And so godly wisdom says, don't, and you do if you get near it. And in that situation, you're saying, I know better than God. God, I got this. I mean, yeah, last time I had an issue with it, but I'm stronger now than I've ever been. I'm in the best shape of my life, Lord. You're exalting your own so-called wisdom above the revealed wisdom of God. 
You're placing yourself above God. You're worshiping yourself. Not in drinking. Not in sipping alcohol. In being near it. You're saying godly wisdom does not dictate my life. I dictate my life. And so here's the scenario. A man drinks alcohol. He drinks more days than he doesn't drink. He very often drinks to the point of intoxication. His drinking is affecting his home life, his family life, his finances. His drinking is causing him to harm himself, to threaten to harm others. His drinking causes him to bring reproach upon the gospel in public, in the workplace. His drinking causes him to ruin his testimony with co-workers. His drinking causes his wife to load up the children and leave in the night because they're threatened. Once this man sobers up, is it in accordance with sin or godliness for him to continue partaking? There's no neutral ground. It's either sinful or it's godly. When it comes to television, it's either sinful or it's godly. It's either pushing you towards exalting Christ or it's pulling you away. Is it in accord with sin or godliness to, per, to continue partaking of alcohol even if he has no intention of getting drunk? The answer is obvious. It's ungodly. It's sinful. And he can say all day long, well, I don't mean to get drunk. I'm not trying to get drunk. I'm just having a drink. I'm just trying to relax. He's sinning because he's chosen worldly selfish wisdom over godly wisdom. That's the sermon. Now I will read from here the charges. On behalf of the elders, our brother Roy Campbell is being charged with regular, persistent alcohol abuse to the extent of regular drunkenness and even verbal abuse and physical threatenings of his wife, Tamara. Now I will read to you the history of the issue. You will know all the details, or, or for the most part, all of the details of the history. Lest anyone be under the impression that we've not served due diligence and served with as much grace and patience as we could. Mr. Campbell joined this congregation in February of 2013 under a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and by means of water baptism. February 2013. During the year between February 2013 and March 2014, and I know this because this was during a time when I lived in a home for only a year, Mr. Campbell and his wife were engaged in many, I would, I'm gonna, I would say at least five, many couple-to-couple -couple marriage resolution meetings with my wife and I because of, there's a gnat up here, sorry, because of regular conflicts many, if not most of which, found their source in his use of alcohol. Once during that year, I was personally called by Officer Gordon Knight of the Taylorsville Police Department to come to the Campbell home and help resolve a domestic dispute between Mr. and Mrs. Campbell. Alcohol, again, was the source, and that can be verified by Officer Knight. On one occasion, again, the same year, 
Mr. Campbell came to my home drunk and belligerent and I called the police on him. After many personal warnings from myself, Tracy White and myself sat down with Roy, explained to him that he should avoid any and all consumption of alcohol because it only seemed to be the cause of destruction in his home. In other words, we said, listen to godly wisdom. Later in 2014, upon a visit to the Campbell residence in Bethlehem, I found Mr. Campbell to be smelling very strongly of alcohol. His words and actions led me to believe he was intoxicated. Now, let me say right there, I've known Roy longer than anybody in this room. I've spent more time with Roy than anybody in this room as a personal, close acquaintance and friend prior to any spiritual leadership at all. I know Roy. And that's why I judged him to be intoxicated by his words and his actions. And I've told some, I can tell from text messages when he's been drinking because I know him. I've known him. Um, I've been close with him for many years. In that same year, following that incident, all of the men of the congregation were gathered together in this back room to hear public charges of alcoholism and drunkenness read to Mr. Campbell so that they might exhort him to sobriety. In other words, the men of the church were, were, say, were, were allowed to hear, here's what's going on. Now it's everybody's turn to jump in and help him. Mr. Campbell agreed after that a few days to begin weekly counseling to deal with the issue and to get help. After several meetings, I was made aware from his wife that Mr. Campbell had never stopped drinking and the problems had continued. And so I challenged him. I cut off the counseling. The counseling was based on the fact that you're willing to change. So I cut it off and I said, you're addicted. I'm not addicted. If you're not addicted, you would be able to quit. And I challenged him to prove he was not addicted by making mention of a random two-month time period. Now, in all transparency, I was not clear on what I meant. And he was apparently not clear on what I meant. I was saying, if you can't even quit for two months, you've got a problem. And apparent, he apparently accepted that imaginary challenge, stopped drinking for two months, and then according to his wife in recent testimony, immediately started drinking again. On May 21st, so all of that was 2013-2014. On May 21st of 2017, up to three years have passed. Again, because of the lack of my own clarification, I'll, I'll take the heat for this, I didn't clarify. I was under the impression he had stopped. On May 21st, 2017, Mr. Campbell didn't come to church. It was a you know, no-show, no-call thing, which is odd for him. Y'all know that. And so when I asked him about his reason, he met, or me and him met on the 23rd of that week. That would be Tuesday of that week. I went, I met with him. He admitted that he had gone out on the Friday night before. He had gotten drunk at a co-worker's birthday party. I understood it, again, to be a, a slip. In three years, one slip. Wrong place, wrong time. I can show mercy there. I can be graceful there. And so I exhorted him to repentance. Not knowing that he never had, had never really stopped drinking since 2014. 
In other words, this was just a flare-up of what had consistently been the problem. On July 15th of this year, I was contacted by Mrs. Campbell, who told me Mr. Campbell had gone out the night before and gotten drunk. So I met with him again, and he claims he only had a few drinks, drove home, sitting in the car, listened to the radio, and fell asleep in the driveway. So I met with him the day I found out. I met with him, the two of them, along with Kyle Hendricks, to address the situation. In that meeting, Mr. Campbell agreed to the following ultimatum from me. After exhorting him again to biblical wisdom, if you're playing with it, it's sin. Stay away from it. It is sin for you to go near it because it leads to sin. I said, can we agree that if you drink again, you're done? Not saying our church's position is that a sip of alcohol is a sin. But for him in this particular circumstance, it would have been sin. And, for, and to continue in such sin required action. So when I said, you're done, that was spoken in the context of church discipline. And he agreed to the ultimatum. In other words, he agreed, if I drink again, I'm done. On August 2nd, I was contacted by my Mrs. Campbell again saying that he had come home drunk again and was acting belligerent and yelling it, yelling. So on August 5th, three days later, Tracy White, Kyle Hendricks, and myself met with him again and enacted the first level of discipline. Namely, you will no longer play guitar in the worship service. You no longer stand and lead the congregation in corporate prayer. In other words, you will be out of the eye of the congregation. You will merely come and worship. And those restrictions were based on an agreement that he would seek accountability from the three of us whenever he felt tempted, whenever he felt enticed or stressed, the anxiety was coming upon him, that he would get, reach out to us and we would be there for him to walk him through it. And I've done this with other people. I've said, here's my number, call me. I'll stand and talk to you on the phone until the temptation is gone. If I have to, I'll just open the Bible and start reading it in your ear. So he agreed to that. Mr. Campbell did not attend services on August 6th, two weeks ago, or August 13th, last week. On Friday night, August 18th, this past Friday, Mrs. Campbell sought shelter at our home and confided in my wife and I that Mr. Campbell had arrived home from work, drunk, was provoked by her questioning his inebriated state, punched himself in the nose, called the police and claiming she had punched him and threatened her with a knife should she try to leave with the children. The officer on the scene agreed with her testimony, having experienced this sort of thing, having analyzed her knuckles on her hand, agreed with Mrs. Campbell that Mr. Campbell was drunk and the officer encouraged her to go to the magistrate's office and press charges which she didn't do. A very wise and biblical decision, by the way. If there is anyone in this room who can testify to the truthfulness of any single claim I have just read, 
please stand as a public witness to these charges. You may be seated. In light of these things and their verification by the testimony of two or three witnesses, the elders of Covenant Bible Church propose that Mr. Campbell be immediately removed from the membership of this congregation according to the prescriptions of 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 4 when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord now what I want to do at this time is enter into a time of corporate prayer like we're used to in our worship services. And y'all are visiting, y'all don't know how we do this, but generally we open the service with an extended time of corporate prayer. I want to enter that time. I want the subject matter to be what we've discussed. We don't have to pray about Kim Jong-un, North Korea, Russia, and all that stuff. We're focusing our prayers intently on the issue at hand. And then after a period of... Fifteen seconds of silence. I will assume that the men of the congregation are finished with their prayers. And I will close in prayer. So let me open us first. Oh Lord. We desperately need your sustaining hand. And we need a testimony of faithfulness and truth in accordance with your word. Lord, you've, you've laid out the prescriptions and the commands and as difficult as they are and as, as uncommon as they are in so many so-called churches. And Lord, it's so hard, but we trust. We're believing our faith is in the revealed will of God that you have said that if we will be obedient to your word, you will bless. I pray for Tamara and her safety and for her continued perseverance as she seeks to be a godly wife in this situation, as she seeks to make personal changes of her own, in her own attitude and life and responses to help alleviate the situation. I pray for their children. As I've prayed over and over, Lord, I pray that these children would be for, it, it, these things would be forgotten. They would not be remembered. As kids forget so many things. Lord, I pray that it would be forgotten. That they would have to say, what discipline? What, what drinking issue? Kira being the oldest, Lord, I pray that you would preserve her mind from being affected by these things. Lord, we see the effects of these things on, on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who continue in persistent sin. And while she will not be punished for her father's sin, she may use these scenes from her childhood to be tempted into her own lifestyle of sin. And I pray that that wouldn't happen, that you'd preserve her soul. Lord, I'm praying that you would grant repentance and faith that you would grant conviction of sin, that you would grant the Holy Spirit power to tear down strongholds, to tear down walls of defensiveness. I pray that everything would just be laid out and transparent, that, that the weakness of a man trying to deal with a sin, an ingrained sin of his mind, that weakness would be displayed because it's in our weakness that your power is made known. Your glory is made known when we say, God, I can't do anything. 
So, Father, do that for us. Do that for that household. Lord, protect your church. We want and believe in a pure church. Not a perfect church, but a pure church, purified, and, and a church that is being sanctified. Lord, do that for us. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we move forward in this congregation. I pray that you would give us a sobriety and a mournful spirit over this thing, that it would not be light, that every person in here would realize that, yes, there's always next week. This is not the only sin that needs to be addressed. I pray that we would realize as a church, that as a church body, we are serious about sin. Because you're serious about sin. Lord, we should all be killed now for our sin. You've extended patience in giving us church discipline. You extend fatherly care in church discipline. What a, grace, a gracious thing you've given us here. And I pray that it will have its intended effects and you will be glorified. Father, glorify yourself in your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, Father, you've heard our prayers. And now we ask that you would guide us as we move forward. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I think it's clear from our prayers that we as a church believe what the Bible teaches, that God is holy, that God as a good and, and honest and just judge must punish sin. He has to. And we're all sinners. He must punish sin and sinners and we're all sinners and therefore the only logical conclusion is we must be punished. We all stand naturally under the just condemnation of God. But at just the right time, God sent His Son to die on the cross to bear the weight of that punishment for us so that now we trust in Him. We, we, and, and, and when we trust in Christ, the, the Scriptures are clear, the, the Holy Spirit of God comes in transforms our nature, makes us a new creature, the Bible says. And so we begin to think and act differently. And therefore, when we see a person who claims to have been have, have received the first part of that whole work, but then the second part is not complete, there's a disconnect. Either their claim is wrong or God has failed to do what He said He would do. God doesn't fail. So the claim must be either either spurious or confused. Yeah. Well, let's... I want to open the, the floor up just for a few minutes for question and answer. If anybody has any questions at all about any of this, um, I want to be completely open and transparent about everything. And I, I'm not going to wait all day, but um, if there is, we want to be clear. And we'll be here for lunch. So, um, Well, here's what we'll do. Having heard the scriptures and having heard the charges, having heard the proposal of the elders, and now having gathered before the throne of our king, we're now going to go around the room. Every member of the congregation will vocalize audibly their vote. A simple yes means I agree with the elders' proposal. A simple no means... I do not agree with the elders' proposal. The elders will not vote. It's not elder discipline, it's church discipline. 
So the elders will not vote. And um, make sure that when you vocalize your answer, you say it loud enough for everyone to hear. So we can start here, go down the room, back and forth. Me and you'll be last, okay? Practical instructions from here. The, the vote is unanimous. First of all, no gossip, no slander. This audio will be put online. I'm not going to share it, and I don't want you sharing it, saying, look, look what happened. If someone asks, it can be discussed, but not, not any further than, than uh, the, the most necessary of details. Um, no slander, no gossip, no joking. It's not funny. It's, it's, it is a heart-wrenching thing. Secondly, regular admonitions and encouragements are a must from all members to the Campbell family. Men to him, women to her. That's your job now. Regular admonitions and encouragements. Consistent communication is a must with the Campbell family. Men to him, women to her. That's your duty as a church member. If you don't want to do that, there's a church there, there's a church there, there's a church down in the parking lot. There are churches everywhere to go to where you can sit and, and participate in nothing. As members of a body, this is our job now from this point. Consistent communication. Men with him, women with her. Limited fellowship with him. Not her, not her children, him. No regular associations, no meals, no friendly hobnobbing. Personal fellowship with him will be the purpose for reproof, correction, and encouragement, and that's it. In other words, we, must, we, we cannot pretend like everything's the same. And at any time, he appears to be repentant and displays the fruit of godly sorrow and repentance according to 2 Corinthians 7, there will be, and that will, we're all going to be communicating, there will be a time of evaluation. He will be proposed for a membership renewal. He will be welcomed back into this congregation by a vote by every single member. He will be here to hear that, and it will not be addressed again. It will be forgotten as if it never happened. He won't be treated like that weirdo. Um, so, let's close with a word of prayer and then we'll stand and sing one song and then Nate will pray over the food. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your wisdom and we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your continued patience with every single one of us. That you have not removed every one of us from your presence is, is an act of mercy that we can't even begin to comprehend. And so we don't stand here with any haughtiness or arrogance as if we have not sinned. Lord, if we do, I pray that that would be brought to the light and conviction of the Holy Spirit would be evident. Lord, bless our church and bless the Campbells. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.